is the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Good afternoon, David Clawton with you today. Michael's in Condoblin, so we'll hear more about his travels tomorrow. We'll be focusing on cattle feedlots, how to reduce emissions and the winner of the Young Feedlot of the Year Award, plus the difficult job of transitioning out of one tree crop like apples and pears to another like pistachios. Of course, it's a very long and slow process with pistachios. You got a lot out, like, and nothing coming back in for, what, six, seven years. It's a fascinating discussion, so uh, we'll hear more about those in the second half of the program. Our SMS, 0467 But first to the fires, and the South East Local Land Services has confirmed that 125 head of livestock were lost in the Kulagalite bushfire on the far southeast coast. The fire fled up a week ago and two homes were destroyed in that blaze, 14 outbuildings, including sheds and stables. That fire is now under control after burning over 7,000 hectares. LLS Risk and Emergency Management Coordinator Matt McNaughton, Matt McNaughton says staff will continue to provide support to farmers and livestock. He caught up with the ABC's Victor Petrovic on their activities uh, over the last few days, but also spoke about how they're preparing their service for the season ahead. So uh, local land services actually work as part of the animal and ag uh, services functional area. So we support um, the animal and ag side of the, the bushfire response where we will help provide refuge for people that are evacuated um, during the, the, the fire and then immediately after the fire at our first opportunity we get into the fire ground and start assessing uh, the impacts of the fire on the animals where it's gone through. Has there been a lot of that kind of work um, around the Calagalite fire over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so last week our field crews were deployed on uh, Thursday and Friday and they went in and and assessed um, all of the properties that they could get access to, uh, which is I think most of the properties affected by the fire anyway. Uh, Yeah, look, there was uh, a bit of stock destruction um, that had happened where some some landholders had lost, um, you know, it was in the vicinity of about 125 livestock, and obviously there was a bit of an impact to native animals, which we don't manage, but we certainly provide that information and assist where we can. Yeah, so I know it is early days, but we do we know how much you know of that kind of agricultural land or, or livestock were lost in this fire? Yep. So there was 125 head of livestock lost, um, so 60 sheep and 65 cattle. As far as breaking down in hectares of private agricultural land versus uh, bushland and, and national park burnt, I can't give you those exact figures. But, you know, there's extensive uh, damage to farm infrastructure and fencing and there is a few sheds that are burnt as well. Obviously, this area has been through a few of these disasters, unfortunately. But um, do you know what, um, I guess, some of the feeling among landholders has been when LLS has been going out to help them after this fire? Yeah, look, we've, we've had a welcoming response. Our field crews have certainly reported that um, people have been happy to see them and happy that somebody's there to help. Um, we generally, we get in pretty early um, after the, the fires have gone through um, to get those animal assessments done as quick as we can and deal with any welfare issues as, as, as quick as we can. Um, we are limited by being granted access at times because we certainly can't be deploying stuff into the fire ground until it's safe to do so and RFS are the ones that control that and give us the, uh, the, you know, the go-ahead to go and conduct that activity. But, yeah, the, the, the feel is that um, 
we, we get a very welcome response from the landholders and it, it's, it's good for our staff to uh, be able to, uh, you know, liaise with, with those people on the ground and reassure them that we are here to help and, you know, we can help deal with these issues. And, and it's ongoing. It's not just the initial assessment. You know, our, our district vets and our biosecurity staff and field staff will continue to help monitor ongoing potential ongoing health issues that may occur from, you know, bushfire affected animals. It is still relatively early in the fire season, and we've already had a fire like that, the, the one that we're talking about. Um, is LLS, you know, gearing up for a big season on this front? Look, we, we, are, we are preparing uh, as best we can uh, for, you know, for you know, what is being forecast as a, a, a tough season ahead. Um, but as far as forecasting the season, we sort of leave that up to the RFS, but we are certainly gearing up and, and making sure that our preparedness and everything is in check and, and we're ready to respond um, as part of animal and aid services if, if these events happen. Probably just one other thing I could mention is the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority have actually set up two hubs. There's one in Cabargo and one in Bermagui for people that were affected by fires. We've also got staff that work with those guys. Um, and we've got our hotline number that we can that, that people can call if they still need assistance if anything comes up after the fact that that's that, that um, may not present when we, we go through and do initial inspections and assessments. That's the Southeast Local Land Services Risk and Emergency Management Coordinator Matt McNaughton. And the number for the LLS is 1300 795 1300 795 And uh, take out our text line number as well and send us a text. We'd love to hear how you're coping today. There are total fire bans uh, in a number of places around the state. We'd be interested to hear what you're seeing and experiencing. 0467 922684 is the SMS. 0467 And if you're listening on the ABC Listen app, you can message us from there as well. There's uh, a total fire ban in the Greater Sydney area, Greater Hunter, the northwestern, the northern slopes and the upper and lower central western plains. I can't see any fires that are at Watch and Act or emergency warning level today. There are a number of planned burns happening at uh, Young, Wagga Wagga, Canberra and in the north at Armidale. So uh, yeah, let me know how you're going, particularly if you're, if you're involved in harvesting or uh, just working on the farm. What are conditions like where you are right now? 0467 and um, the uh, the weather, of course, is having an impact on crops around the place. The forecast for New South Wales in terms of the volume of the crops is a bit unclear. It looked like crop production would be down about 40% due to the dry conditions based on a New South Wales DPI estimate from a month or so back. But unprecedented heat and wind in September has caused significant damage to the wheat crops. Uh, Rowan Brill, an agronomist and farmer in Gan Main near Wagga Wagga, told Michael Condon he had some decent rain when we saw that come through a week or so back. But he reckons it won't be enough to rescue the New South Wales crop overall. Yeah, good rain around here, probably a bit further, some of the Riverina, maybe, you know, back in the, you know, 10 to 15 mil range, which is probably a bit late for a lot of crops. Um, but yeah, not to complain. Luckily, we had um, what we were cursing last harvest was all the water we had at harvest and bogging headers, but it's, it's helped get the crop through this year. And the accent really here talking today was about conserving as much water as possible for the dry yeah. years, isn't it? We've gone from waterlogging, which happens sort of once every, you know, probably on average once every 10 years, but nine years out of 10 where we need moisture. So, um, 
yeah, as soon as it, if we get a rain in summer, we'll be trying to knock the weeds and stop them from using moisture fairly quickly, yeah. And that sort of seemed to be what uh, people are saying, that you've, you really, and I guess in, in a, as things start to dry, those people who have got the moisture, they've got money in the bank. Yeah, if you've got, especially if you've got that moisture down deep and the crops pick it up, say, in springtime, and you, it's your way of um, you know, manufacturing your own spring by having deep water in the profile, that, that rain might fall in... Unfortunately, sometimes falls in harvest time, but it, the crop might take it up in the following September or October, and that's when you can really get big value out of it. So what would be ideal from here on in? It depends where you are, really. Like, it, certainly in this environment, Wallenbean, they'd happily take another 30, 40 mils, I would have thought. Um, but once you get, you know, out to the northern western Riverina, I'd say, you know, there's, there's canola crops wind road and probably canola crops nearly harvested by now. Um Barley's probably ready for a harvester. Um, wheat's probably close, so they're probably not looking for a lot of rain right now. So, yeah, it just really depends on where you are. And you go you go south, they'd probably happily take another rain too. And up, up north, they're probably, you know, you know, it, their, their year's over. Yeah, in a perfect world, they'll get their bit of crop off and um, and hope the, hope the clouds open up and, and sort of fill that profile again, which historically they should get um, summer rain and fill the profile and grow most of their crop on summer rainfall but um yeah hopefully they do get that summer rain and the storm events and that sort of thing to to top it up so how are your clients fearing what's the sort of you know give us a spectrum of where they are um we're we're probably we've suffered wheat suffered a fair bit the heat of the last three or so weeks was was really it was unprecedented really the heat and combined with wind just the crops just couldn't keep up as far especially wheat canola and barley were that much further ahead and they they didn't they haven't suffered anywhere near the damage i think but wheat especially is a crop that suffered a fair bit of damage sort of you know this in the in the eastern riverina type country so um and probably in that area the further west you go the more advanced the crops were and the less benefit they've probably got out of this recent rain so um and probably less rain than, than there was here too yeah so we're hearing about that i think that the figure that the dpi putting on on it is that um, 40% of the New South Wales crop is struggling and that sort of dovetails in with what you're seeing? Yeah, it's, I would have said for wheat it's probably even more than that. I would have thought probably, you know, the big areas are still... Um, like, if we get a big year, the tonnes come from your, you know, your Borellans, your Condoblans and your um, Ningans and your Canambles and Walgots and that sort of thing. And that area is, like, I would have thought that... If you took all that area, it's probably 80% down, I would have thought. So, you know, the big tons come off the big hectares to the west, but that, that area is massively down compared to average, for, certainly compared to last year anyway. Well, like you were saying there, your Canamble, Walgett, a lot of people didn't even bother putting a crop in, just didn't get enough at the beginning. No, that was a trouble. There's probably still moisture underneath in that country too, but it was just getting the top wet to actually get a crop going and getting it tapped down in deep into the, into the profile. So if they had got the top 50 centimetres wet, I think they would have, um, you know, they would have had a reasonable year, but just couldn't quite wet that that top of the soil. That's agronomist Rowan Brill speaking with Michael Condon, and as I mentioned, Michael uh, mentioned a moment ago, Michael in Condoblin today with Tim Fuchs, and we'll hear more about their travels tomorrow on the Country Hour. There's another study I'll tell you about in a minute um, about bovair, but uh, you might recall we heard recently about trials by the University of New England that were showing some impressive reductions in methane emissions from cattle in feedlots using an increased dose of a Dutch product called Bovair. 
But using a higher dose means higher costs, and the company isn't yet saying how much they'll be charging. There's another study being done using Bovair in Queensland, which puts the dose in a small bolus, which is put down the throat of the animal, and that gets released over time, which could be useful on big properties where the cattle aren't handled often. Dr Sarah Mill from the University of Queensland is running that study, and I spoke to her about that work, but also the results on that other feedlot trial I mentioned, which showed a reduction in emissions of around 90%. That level of reduction is very interesting, very exciting. Um, it is something that we've seen to a smaller extent in other trials. It does really depend on what the basal diet is. So what are you mixing the blow bear with? I thought the key thing here in terms of the, the very high results that they got in terms of methane reduction up to 99% in some cases was probably driven by the fact that they quadrupled the dose you know what I mean like normally it's just a quarter of a teaspoon or half a teaspoon isn't it and and they've they've increased that to two teaspoons yeah yeah and that is absolutely one reason for it um whether that comes out to be economically viable I'm not really sure um in terms of big animals though I guess it's one of the the lesser options to reduce overall methane big methane because it is already pretty efficient in terms of our system. We're feeding grain, so the animals grow quite quickly. One of the the other metrics you can report that on is how much methane per unit of product. So, for example, how many grams of methane per kilograms of beef does that animal produce? So in a feedlot, that number is going to be lower because they are growing faster. How much lower? Um, It really does depend on the product and the diet. I can't give you an exact number on that one, sorry. What about a range? Are we sort of talking about cutting it in half or 10%? Yeah, probably the 20 to 30% would be a rough guess. All right. So what's the point then of trying to bring in and use a product that sounds like it might be expensive but could significantly reduce your methane emissions again if you were operating in a feedlot? So is the industry kind of seriously thinking about it? Yeah, I think, honestly, the industry has to think about it. It's, as an anti-methanogenic supplement, the primary goal is, yes, to reduce methane. One of the offsets of that could also be an increased production. So, theoretically, the, the energy that was going as methane has to go somewhere, and we are hoping that it redirects as growth. Wow, that'd be good. Any signs of that in that study? Um. In that study, I don't know because I do not know the exact details of the outcome. Um, It's not always seen, but there are some studies and and, and research I'm working on currently where we have seen 10 to 20% increases in productivity, so animal growth. Right. And so explain more about your research because you're using a different sort of delivery method for Bovair. Is that right? Yep. So we we have a, a study, two studies currently, one of which is feeding this product in grazing cattle, so using it as a a pellet delivery system. Um, That is the study I was referring to that has seen quite a good increase in terms of productivity. The other aspect of of how you supply this product is a slow-release mechanism, so something like a bolus or a a device that goes into the animal. So something they swallow or do you have to to insert it somehow? Um, We we, we do insert it. They are swallowing mechanism at the same time, but it is a routinely done procedure for any um, medication or there are boluses out there that have um, selenium and cobalt in them. Sounds uncomfortable, but but it's fairly commonly used and not too difficult for the cattle, yeah? Yeah, and it is essentially a one-off treatment. Do they get them in? It's they, would they get them in to, for some other kind of animal husbandry type in, thing? They would, animals would come in at weaning, for example, so when they get a tag put in, 
uh, as a requirement of law, they have to be tagged. Could you do it then? So that is that is our goal of, of basically administering it at that time. Whether that's the most effective time, we are still determining that. That's part of our research. Um, that study is really just starting, so we don't have any results at date. We are in the development of the, the, the insert bolus itself. And the cost? Um, What's the cost of these boluses likely to be? The cost of the bolus itself is extremely cheap in the sense range. Um, the cost of the product going into it is the other consideration, obviously. Per head? Do you have a number? No, because DSM will not share the cost of the product. <laughs> Dr. Sarah Meal, who's a senior lecturer at animal science and production at the University of Queensland. And you can see more about that story online if you search for the ABC Rural page. Bo there. Fascinating to see how that's unfolding. And of course, Asparagopsis is the Australian product that they're developing from seaweed. But there are some issues around that, which we'll dig into a bit more in uh, time to come. Uh, we had a few texts on the fire threat today and... Um, Troy saying zero assistance from the local land services uh, for burnt out land owners. No emergency stock fodder or emergency assistance with lost fencing to prevent disaster displaced livestock straying onto public roads. And that's been a massive problem over the last while, I suspect, you know, with all of these emergencies and, and fences brought down by floods and fires, livestock on the roads. Uh, we also had a message from Ray, who's in Cowra, says the wind's picking up there. And uh, Jock in the Riverina says um, about the crop report, nothing unprecedented about the hot, windy weather in September. It's all happened before uh, 1965. Similar weather actually killed the wheat crop in the northern Riverina. And there was another texter talking about the weather. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, hang on a sec. Uh, Dave saying just shy of 32 degrees in Trundle with hot wind gusts blowing dust around. It's too hot to work in the machinery shed. I feel for you, Dave. I hope you've got somewhere cool to retreat to. 0467 922 684 is our SMS. Love to hear from you. Love to hear from you if you want to message us via the ABC Listen app. So uh, there should be a button there you can click on to uh, text the country hour via the app. So still at feedlots, uh, at 26 years of age, Timothy Brennan has just been announced as the winner of the Young Lot Feeder of the Year Award by the Lot Feeders Association. Ondine Slack-Smith spoke to him about what he does for a living and why he's so passionate about agriculture. I work at NH Foods Wild Beef. We're a vertically integrated company that operates uh, 55,000 head feedlot. Um, we also operate some processing plants along the eastern seaboard as well. Um, but feedlotting is very much my, my passion and what I'm involved with. So my role as a, the livestock feedlot livestock manager is to oversee the, the livestock operation and to, to lead the team that is, um, is, leading, is leading that. So, yeah, my, my job is very much people-focused and, and, and cattle-focused as well. And so whereabouts are you based? We're based um, south of, southeast of Gundawindi um, on the on the border of Queensland and New South Wales in southern Queensland. So at the moment, we're experiencing some really, some really good feedlotting conditions. Not, it's quite dry, quite dry, and and yeah, uh, we're really having a good period at the moment. And where do you sell to? We, um, our, we've got both domestic and global uh, markets that we provide to. We've got quite a global reach. Um, I can't quite comment on how many different countries we sell to, but we. Um, yeah, we, we provide our product all over the world. We've got multiple brands that we that we market. Um, so one you know, some of our better known brands, Angus Reserve, which is our 
our um, Premier Angus product. It, it's um, sold a lot domestically, um, so you can get it at some of the wholesale stores. And then we do some Wagyu product as well, which um, mostly goes overseas into into different different markets. I think we, we sell into some Asian markets um, and, and China as well. How many cattle do you have? Uh, so currently, yeah, currently at the feedlot, we're sitting at about uh, forty-six thousand. So we're still we're still filling up. Um, Fifty-five thousand is at the moment our our peak capacity, but we are currently underway with a with a feedlot expansion, a twenty thousand feedlot expansion. So soon we'll be um, able to to hold a capacity of of seventy-five thousand head of cattle. What do you think about the current situation with the cattle market? Yes, well, um, it's definitely come back a lot, and. We're getting into some cheaper cattle now, and um, you know, I, I suppose from from a trade point of view, that's probably actually opened up some some markets for us overseas. You know, becoming more competitive with other countries. But yes, definitely as a um, as a producer, I'm, my family background is uh, primary producing, and yeah, definitely it's um it's not it's not looking real good for for primary producers. But as, as lot feeders, we um you know we're able to um. To, to get get our hands on some cheaper cattle and and to make to make some further gains out of these lighter cattle that are coming through and um, hopefully you know that can be passed on to the consumers down the track with with cheaper beef. What are your plans now, looking forward into the future? Well, I, over the last year and a half, I've been fortunate enough to receive investment from from the Australian Lot Feeders Association in leadership development, and for me, that's really highlighted the importance of um, exposure to leadership. And I think with a, an industry that predominantly is made up of, of frontline workers, baseline workers, I think this is really where we need to be targeting our leadership programs. Back at my workplace at Wyla Beef, we, um, we're looking at um, implementing leadership programs for ground staff, um, but I think we can go the next step past that. And um, so I'm, I'm working closely with Alpha, the Australian Lot Feeders Association, to... Uh, incorporate leadership programs that are targeted at our ground staff. I really do think some, some issues that we're facing at the moment um, could be mitigated with better overall leadership and hopefully, you know, in the next six months we can we can be talking about some really good programs that, you know, we're going to start start delivering to, to feedlots across Australia. That's Timothy Brennan, who's the feedlot livestock manager at NH Foods in Queensland, just up on the border with New South Wales. And winner of the young feedlot Feeder of the is that right? Young feedlot feeder of the year. Anyway, it was, it's an award by the young lot feeder of the the Australian Lot Feeders Association. And he was speaking to Undine Slack Smith. Congratulations on that one, Timothy. Of course, it's a. And this is the Country Hour. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And still on cattle, imagine a tool that could accurately predict the number of days sheep and cattle can graze in a paddock and hit production targets. Research through the Food Agility CRC with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry aims to help take the guesswork out of grazing management and boost profit by up to 20%. DPI research leader Warwick Badgery is explaining the idea to Emily Doak. What we're looking to do is to remotely predict animal performance in the paddock and then project that forward um, so we know how animals might um, perform in one week, two weeks, three, four weeks' time in, at a paddock level and then aggregate that up to a property level. 
So what sort of information and data are you bringing together to be able to do that? Most of it use remote sense imagery but we also use weather, we use um, the livestock information and the management information so where that, that, that livestock have been as well and moved on the farm. So in terms of livestock, both sheep and cattle? Yeah, we've been working with um, beef cattle and, and sheep um, and yeah, hope to have both of those included in our, in our approach. So in a sense, this is the kind of information that farmers might be gathering themselves, you know, going out in the paddock, walking around, looking at the ground cover, um, you know, looking at the livestock, considering how they might perform. What's the value of having a, a model or a system to do some of that heavy lifting for them? Yeah, look, at, at the moment, sort of farmers can get remote predictions about pasture. Uh, and pasture biomass is actually only part of the story. What we're trying to work out is the grazed quality of that and then that completes the picture and helps us to be able to predict how livestock might perform. And it's sort of to value add to um, things that are out there like walkover weighing or OptiWay units that, that give you daily sort of um, weight change on a, in a retrospective basis. We're sort of trying to look at that and then broaden that to the whole farm so you can do what-ifs about whichever paddock you might have on the farm and then have a forward projection element to it in the future so that you can not only look at how they're performing today but how they perform in two weeks and particularly important when we're in periods at the moment where it's drying off and you need to make early decisions to sort of catch a market or to make sure you've got enough for the stock that you actually want to retain. You know, just what sort of a game changer or difference do you think it could make? Farmers know when it's really bad and they know when it's really good. It's the grey area in the middle um, that they're not sure and, and sometimes producers, when they're uncertain, they wait. And so what we want to do is give them a bit clearer idea about when feed will actually meet animal requirements and keep those animals moving on pasture as, as quickly as they can so they can get them off earlier at heavier weights and it just gives them more options. If you've got animals in better condition, you just have more options in, in circumstances like we've got at the moment. So this research has been underway for some time. What stage is it at? Yeah, good question. We've, um, we've actually been working on this for four years, uh, about four years, um, two, two years under the Food Agility CRC project. Um, we're at the stage now where we've got sort of some prototype models um, that we're starting to field test um, and see how they perform. So th this is the stage that we're at over the next few months is, is put them out in the paddock um, and, and match them up with, with weight changes in animals and just see how well our predictions go. So that field testing, commercial operations, and, and is it happening in various uh, climatic or country? Yeah, we're starting uh, around central New South Wales where we've done a fair bit of validation to start with, but um, as we see how that performs, then we'll sort of move out from there and, and look at other environments. Yeah, so what is the time frame for potentially when this might be able to be rolled out and farmers can tap into it? It really depends how this validation phase goes, I think. So I don't really want to put a date on it because I know I'll be wrong. But, um, yeah, we're really uh, hoping that, um, say, we get some diverse seasonal conditions over the next few year, uh, next 12 months that we can test it against and just see how it works in, in totally naive environments. And, and uh, if it's performing well, then, then we, that's something we can probably push through. That's New South Wales DPI research leader Warwick Badry, who presented his research at the Digital Agri-Food Summit which is on in uh, Wagga Wagga. Today as well, we were broadcasting from there yesterday and you can listen to that coverage online at the uh, ABC New South Wales Country Hour page and you can find us on the ABC Listen app as well if you missed it. Uh, we're at 20... 
eight minutes to one, and Adam Story's here. What's happening in the news, Adam? Hey, Dave. Well, all Israel again, obviously, uh, with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu joining with his political rivals uh, to create an emergency government, uh, given the events of the last uh, week. Uh, the government includes the opposition leader, Benny Gantz, and the defence minister, Yoav Gallant. Uh, it won't take up any unrelated policy or laws. This, will, this government will just uh, focus on the situation with Hamas. Meanwhile, the White House says the US is in active conversations with Israel to allow safe passage out of Gaza for civilians. It's currently blockaded, absolutely nothing getting in or out. Uh, more than 2 million people have no electricity and no water as the airstrikes continue. Uh, the US National Security Spokesperson John Kirby says talks are underway to allow some aid in and for those who want to get out to get out. Uh, back home, uh, organisers of a pro-Palestinian rally planned for Sydney this weekend say they won't be marching through the streets, but they've been given legal advice that they've been, they will be allowed to hold what's called a, stali- a static rally in Hyde Park. Uh, police uh, refused to give permission for a march, uh, saying the group hadn't submitted the paperwork in time. Uh, but this uh, Pal- Palestine Action Group says legal advice says they can go ahead with the rally. Uh, in other news, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong has welcomed the release of Chung Lai uh, from a Chinese prison. The uh, journalist was released yesterday after three years in detention and has been reunited with her family in Melbourne. It was a bit of a surprise given... Uh, all the events that were happening yesterday related to Israel. Uh, that was a, a surprise announcement uh, from Went the Prime the radar, Minister. But good news. Yeah. I know you'll be talking about the weather shortly, but there are uh, total fire bans in place in New South Wales today with no open fires allowed in the Greater Sydney, Greater Hunter, Northern Slopes and Northwestern regions. Uh, hopefully things will remain calm. And a state memorial service for uh, AFL legend Ron Barassi will take place. It's been confirmed for Friday, November 10 at the MCG and you can register for the service at a later date online Mm. and i noticed some people in Mm. australia have been called up to go to israel if they'd done military training oh okay yes they might be back here but they're calling yes i never thought of that if you're an israeli reservist yeah Yeah. and hard to get out because there are you know young people often go to israel um, in their last years of high school yeah and getting some of them out has been really difficult yeah so i think uh two flights at least i think are heading there on friday Mm. i spoke to a farmer or Mm. got a message from a farmer uh, in Israel, and uh, his name is Omer Kemp, and he works for the Europe retail packing business. It's a Dutch company, right? But he's mm. based in Israel. And uh, he was saying that the situation was very fluid there. In the south, a lot of farms weren't working or operating. Um, among the people kidnapped were 60 Thai workers. Yes. And there's a big population. Yeah, of Thai uh, yeah, yeah foreign workers. Mm. Yeah. And they must be working on the farms, at least some of them. says it's rapidly changing a situation there. It's still too early to um, assess the full impact on the fresh produce sector. And I, yeah. I wanted to talk to him, but he wrote back to me last night and he said, he said originally yes, and then he said the horror the country has experienced is overwhelming and I can't with a full mm. heart position myself to either speak or express an opinion at a yeah. time like this. Families were slaughtered with their bodies being mutilated. Mm. Mm. As an Israeli, I don't think I have the right to speak of damages caused to the industry. Uh, I mean, as long as this conflict continues. Mm. So pretty tough. You know, yeah. when, you, when you look in it, whatever the little That's part it. of the The society. horrors have been slowly emerging mm. day by day of what occurred from that Saturday. Yeah. And onwards. Yeah. I yeah. So I can, I can un- totally understand. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much, Adam. Okay, Dave. Uh, find Michael, will you? <laughs> <laughs> find Michael. Michael, where He's are out you? There somewhere. Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> Roaming the countryside, having a lovely time.
Now we'll uh, hear from Michael tomorrow because he's been at a women a women's event and young people. Uh, sorry, Adam, more. Oh no! Just I thought you were going to. No, no, no! no. no you, you have permission you to leave. Me. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's at an event in uh, Condobland, so more on that about in the country hour tomorrow. Uh, Neil Fraser's at the bureau. Uh, Neil, what are what are the weather conditions looking like in terms of fires today? Yes, yeah. There's a cold front coming through. It's passing through the Eastern Riverina at the moment. It's going to continue tracking east, but ahead of that, uh, freshening northwesterly winds and high temperatures. So. As has been mentioned, there's a fire weather warning out for extreme fire danger through the Greater Hunter, Greater Sydney, Northwestern, Upper Central West Plains and the Lower Central West Plains. And they'll remain high tomorrow, but with the change going through, won't be in the extreme range tomorrow. So some relief from the fire situation. So is that change that bringing rain? Yes, there's a band of showers along that frontal line and then there's some showers in behind it and much cooler air behind it as well so most of the rainfall at the moment is occurring in Victoria but we will see some showers and possibly some thunderstorms building up across the central and southern parts of the inland today and they'll reach the south and central coast later in the afternoon or evening as that front comes through. This stage the front looks like reaching the Illawarra in the late afternoon and then uh, up through the Hunter by getting towards Oh, very late in the evening, maybe midnight or so, and then it'll start to weaken on the north coast tomorrow. So potentially also some thunderstorms, maybe one or two severe ones with uh, damaging wind, but it needs a bit of a push to get them going. So there may not be much in the way of thunderstorm activity, but if one does occur, it could drag down some, some damaging winds from the uh, upper the atmosphere. Mm. Behind that change tomorrow... We'll have some showers around the southwest slopes of the ranges in the Alps and some snow on the peaks of the of the snowy mountains, but generally the rest of the state looks like being dry, except maybe with that trough lingering, as a frank, it's going to weaken on the north coast, maybe a, shower, a thunderstorm or shower in the afternoon up in the far north coast, more likely across the border in southeast Queensland, but there may be something there, and that lingers into Saturday as well, so possibly... Yeah, in the very far north, there may be an afternoon shower or thunderstorm. Those showers will continue around the southwest slopes of the ranges, including the Alps, and a little bit more snow down through there, but generally remaining dry for the rest. Another cold front coming through on Sunday, so that will reintroduce some showers across the southern border regions and keep them going, maybe on the far, or bring them into the far south coast as well. And then Monday, as that front moves through, the showers might become a little bit more widespread through the southeast and affect parts of the coast. But most of the inland, apart from today, will remain uh, dry right through the next week or so. Right. And Okay, so and have you got more to say about the next few days then? No, well, after Monday, it all settles down and very little happening, even on the coastal part. So it looks like being dry with a high-pressure system coming in uh, midweek next week. So the dry, apart from what we're going to get today and a little bit tomorrow in the southern areas, not much at all. And in terms of rainfall totals, it's pretty unpredictable, is it? Yeah, not not a huge amount, maybe 5 to 10 millimetres around the, the southwest slopes today as that system comes through and then a few more millimetres for Friday and Saturday through there. But as I said, not, not much. Right, and then a On, dry period, were you saying? For, for Pretty dry period, yeah. Monday probably has some showers up and down the coast and around the southern ranges, southwest slopes area, but uh, not a huge amount on the coast either. Right, and there's no on the on the national chart. There's nothing sort of coming across from the 
the west no, or the south or the north? No, it looks like the high is going to start to dominate again. Okay. Yeah, from next week. Yeah. Beauty. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, David. Neil Fraser at the Bureau of Meteorology. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. On the text line, uh, Dave was saying it's too hot to work in his machinery shed. The temps are in Trundle, 32 degrees. Someone else says, uh, Dave, get a life. Too hot to work in October. Seriously, they say. He can't be. Can't be serious. But uh, Dave, actually, or another Dave, has texted back to say, if Tim and Michael know what's good for them, they'll be holed up in the club at Condoblin, enjoying the air conditioning and food and drinks. Uh, Yes, well, uh, that will be a fine idea. I suspect that Michael actually will be driving back to Sydney because it's a a six-hour drive and he's got to work here tomorrow. So uh, safe travels, Michael. Uh, It's always a hard decision to sell a family farm and leave the industry, but poor apple prices and a chance to retire without the 4am starts anymore pushed one couple to to do that, to sell up. Gary Pollard and his wife Heather, a fourth and sixth generation apple growers from the Harcourt region in central Victoria, and they both had an ideal childhood on the family's orchard. But the pair have recently decided to sell and move on. Eden Hennanen had a chat with Gary about what changes he's noticed in the industry over his lifetime. Yeah, there's not many not many apple growers left now. That look, just in the Elphinstone region, there was there was 23, I think. I'm going I'm going back years ago, and like everyone, probably had 15 to 20 acres of orchard and raised a family on it quite, you know, very very easily. Um, they might have had a few sheep and might have had a few cattle, whatever, as well. But they raised families, you know, way back. Quite, quite easily. Um, so things have, things have changed, yes. And going back to that, what was that like for you growing up in an apple orchard and being in a community like that? Well, I didn't know any different. I just grew up, um, went to school and, and come home and there will be always something to do. Mainly, so summertime, you used to spend most of your time with a shovel over your shoulder with the old flood irrigation channel, little channels down each side of the apple tree. That's probably the biggest change that's happened all changing over to the, to the drippers or trickle irrigation as we know it now. Uh, you've recently just sold the business. How does it feel leaving the industry and what will you miss? <laughs> Might be easier to say what I don't, won't miss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's because it's been such a big part of both our lives, we are going to miss it. We're going to miss the, we're going to miss the contact with the people at, at the markets. We've, we've developed a real real clientele and we're going to miss them and hopefully they're going to miss us too, I suppose. But, but I mean, I just turned 65 in August and, and Heather's a couple of years younger than me, so it was, it was getting close to our time. You, you mentioned that you've been doing farmer's markets over the past 10 years. Prior to that, you were selling uh, into the large supermarket chains. Why the decision to, to move to markets? We used to supply about three supermarkets in Melbourne, a couple of little ones, one bigger one. Um, a couple of other fruit and veg guys are around this area. The supermarkets dictate how much they want to pay. Um, and the old story about, we really want to buy your fruit, but we can get fruit cheaper through the system. But we'd really like to buy your fruit, but it's your decision. So you make the decision whether you want to supply us or not. And there was a bit of a turning point for you, wasn't there, when you decided to move away from that? Yeah, the straw that broke the camel's back was we had some excess fruit one year and we had a we had our own transport business then, so I was able to cart it down. But we got a full semi-trail load 
packed up in Harcourt. So that's 20 pallets of um, 12 kilo boxes. Send it down to the Melbourne market through an agent. We'll quote it 26 to $28 for 12 kilo boxes. When we got our returns back, it was $8.50. Cost us $7 a carton to be packed and boxed. So, you know, farmers are probably renowned for not being mathematicians, but I could I could work this one out. So that was a straw that broke the camel's back, and we decided, no, there's got to be a better way. So that's the way we decided to go, and it's been a huge benefit. Look, we'd be statistic before this if we didn't go down that path, I'm sure. Really busy, like every Saturday, Sunday, you start doing that as well as your week work. So you get to Friday night after you've worked all week, most people think, oh, beauty, you've got a couple of days off and can relax. Well, that's when it hypes up because, you know, getting up at 4.30 in the morning or something and trundling off to a market. Sure, you get home middle of the afternoon, but then you get set for the next day. And then come Sunday night, it's back to normal again on for Monday. So there's no really downtime. But in saying that, that's what we chose to do. It paid off. So that's that's what we did. And you've decided now to, to get out of the industry and you and Heather are looking to retire. What do you make of, you know, where do you see things heading for that region in the coming years? Do you see many farming families remaining? Unfortunately, the horticulture part of it in, in Mount Harcourt is no different than any other farming. The age the age of people are getting older. No, no young ones want to take it on. We have we didn't have a family, so none of our nephews and that were interested. So so that was the path we went down. And that's uh, High Court Apples, Gary Pollard. Uh, he's speaking to Eden Hennan in there. And in response to that story, Woolworth said it's always working to strike the right balance so suppliers receive a fair price and customers have access to high-quality and affordable fresh produce. Cole say when it comes to the price of their fruit, they can assure customers it reflects the cost of raw ingredients that they pay for um, to the suppliers. In addition to the cost of things like processing, transport, labour, packaging and other costs associated with getting a product ready to go on the shelves for customers. And uh, apple growers in New South Wales are also pulling out their trees Um We'll hear more about that on the Country Hour tomorrow. Meanwhile, another Victorian farmer has been pulling out his apple trees and switching to a different crop, but it'll take seven years before he makes a dollar from the new trees. Dion and Melissa Steike farm at uh, Warraneen in Victoria's Sunraysia region. They're in the process of transitioning from stone fruits into pistachio nuts. And as Dion explains, they've just done their first shake or harvest of the new trees. I don't see a bright future in the fruit industry. Our labour costs are far too high. Once upon a time, we used to supply overseas markets like Southeast Asia and China, and we pretty well had limited opposition. Now, Chile's got cheaper wages than us. South Africa's coming on board. Their wages is like a dollar eighty-seven per Australian per hour. That's what we're trying to compete against. And um, once we used to do okay at the export, now it's getting tougher and tougher. So we decided to jump out the stone fruit. I've removed about 100 to 150 acres of stone fruit and the last 100 acres probably go at the end of the season, we think. So you've planted some pistachio trees. How long ago was that and why are they more suitable for your operation? The oldest ones are six years old. We've got ones up until we just planted some 
three, four weeks ago, we planted some. We planted them in lots of uh, approximately 30,000 per lot. Um, and, yeah, the oldest ones are coming up six years and we hope to get it, well, hope to get some sort of income back off them this year because up until now the fertiliser costs, it's been killing us. Um, of course, it's a very long and slow process with pistachios. you got a lot out, like, and nothing coming back in for, what, six, seven years. It's a long time to wait for a paycheck, um, Dion. It's, it, it's a long time to live off the fat on your back, I can tell you. Luckily, I've kept, I've kept some of the better varieties of the stone fruit to keep paying some bills, and we're going to transition this year over um, to the at the end of the season. Like we'll go over to well, solely pistachios. This is what we're aiming to do. Now you've just done your first harvest of those six-year-old trees, or your first shake. Is that how you? Is that what you call it? That that's right. They were five years old at that stage. We only got oh. Because of the uh, bad seasonal weather last year and the floods and that, we copped a bit of disease and stuff in the nuts. Um, I think we got, I don't know, maybe half a kilo a tree. Don't hold me to it, but about half a kilo a tree. It was enough to get the machinery going here also because we're actually putting in a, um, we're putting a dehulling plant here also and we're going to de-hull them and we've got a grading machine coming this winter and we're going to actually do the whole lot ourselves now. Now, in terms of the harvest and, and the reason it's so less labour-intensive, is that, is that because you send a machine down the rows, is it? Yeah, that's correct. It's all, well, not all, but 90% of it is machine done, um, whereas the stone fruit, 90% of the work is is manual labour. And like I said, our labour costs here, it's, it's too dear. We have a minimum wage now, even if the workers like are underperforming, we still have to pay them that money, and it's just unviable. Like many growers around here, they're just abandoning their orchards. My next door neighbour here has abandoned his orchard. The trees are there. I'm looking over; they're dying now. But with the with the pistachios, um, the the shake that you did of your trees, how did that go in terms of where your plan is at? Did it, are you are they performing okay? Yes, yes, it's okay. It was a big learning curve. Like, we'd never driven the shakers before. I've got a couple of blokes who work uh, for me who are off a wheat farm when they were younger, and they're very good with machinery. And um, I've been around machinery all of our life, my life, and um, we got the hang of it pretty quickly. Yeah, like, we're kind of getting geared up for, well, future years, we're hoping. So this time next year, do you think you'll be, you'll be getting a full crop and will your will your well, dehulling plant be ready then? Or? Well, I can see the bunches on there now. Um, they're coming out now and, what, about next March, April, that's when the harvest will be on and we'll harvest them off with the shakers and then we'll put them through the dehulling plant here and then as soon as that's finished, then we'll start with our grading machine that we're getting. It's all about cutting down on our labour costs. In terms of the pistachios, where will you sell them when they're ready? Will you do your own marketing or how will that work? Yes, yes, we'll do our own marketing. We're used to selling the stone fruit too. My son actually exports the stone fruit for me. and um, But we'll mainly be concentrating domestically to start with because our volume's not going to be great. The trees I've planted are like approximately 30,000 each year. Um I've been putting them in, 
of course, we'll, we'll have some crop this year. Um, it's looking okay at this stage. Like, that's the six-year-old ones, the oldest ones. Um, in a few years' time, when they all start coming into production, yeah, we'll, we'll look at exporting some then. But I've got people lined up who, who have said, like, they will, they will get them off us. Dion Stikey, a stone fruit grower who started growing pistachio nuts, speaking with Emma Field. It's fascinating, that business, isn't it? You've got to be in it for the long game. Uh, we were talking about prices that uh, people were getting for their fruit from the supermarkets, and uh, Floyd's texted us to say, Cole's offering a decent price to suppliers. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everyone lower in the supply chain, he says, particularly the grower wears the major risk of production, but they mark up 100% in store. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Israel forms a unity government in the wake of the deadly attacks by Hamas. Israeli forces prepare for a ground assault of Gaza. Several New South Wales schools are closed as large parts of the state prepare for extreme bushfire conditions. And NASA shares early results of the largest delivery of asteroid samples from a spacecraft. What will it teach us about life on Earth? Those stories coming up on The World Today. It's six minutes to one markets in a moment, but there's several live export ships taking cattle to Indonesia this month. But it's the number of cattle being left behind that's got people concerned. For almost three months now, the federal government vets have been rejecting cattle with any sort of skin blemish. And that's ruling out large amounts of top-end cattle. The Federal Department of Ag says its vets are doing that to ensure cattle meet export requirements in the Indonesian Quarantine Authority. NT Cattle Producer and former President of the Cattle Council, Marcus Rathman, is getting ready to sell cattle in the coming weeks. He says the situation makes no sense and the government needs to sort it out quickly. Well, the trade's been very slow. It's never really closed, but the trade's certainly slow. And my understanding is it's not the Indonesians um, rejecting the cattle. It's basically our own aquas inspectors Um, and that's a real concern because it's costing producers and exporters a hell of a lot of money and there's been I think runs of up to 40% where there's been rejections Um, and unfortunately the wording is is also terrible Matt Um, the animals are said to have lesions but that's certainly not the case and the dictionary meaning of a lesion is a structural change resulting from injury or disease. And the animals certainly don't have disease and they certainly don't have injuries. That's Marcus Rutzman from the Ringwood uh, station in NT. And in a statement to the country, the Federal Department of Agriculture said regarding the crackdown on cattle with skin blemishes, says those are requirements of the Indonesian Quarantine Authority, not the Australian Department of Ag, who in this circumstance are regulating to ensure exports meet the importing country's requirements. Let's check out what's happening in livestock markets and Leanne Dax is at Wagga. Good afternoon. Numbers surged to 49,000 lambs and 20,000 sheep on the back of last week's price spike. Quality was fair to very good across trade and heavy categories. Some pens of young lambs were showing dryness. Not all trade buyers made it to the sale. However, it was a very good sale with young trade lambs 
confirmed to a few dollars easier. Heavy young lambs, 20 to 24 kilo, 90 to 135, 26 to 30, 142 to 152, over 30 kilos, 152 to 179.40, averaging 486 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Old trade lambs were back 7 to 10, selling at $50 to 117. Heavy lambs, over 26 kilos, are on change, 122 to 162, over 30 kilos were back 15. 155 to 170. Merino lambs, $74 to 117. Store lambs have met strong competition, lifting $5 to $8. The better lambs with frame, $67 to 114. There have been sheep sold and they're selling $30 to $50 cheaper, averaging $90 to $125. Cents. I'm Leanne Dax, MLA. To the Dubbo sale now. Numbers keep rolling in with the yarding of 5,450. It was a mixed yarding with good numbers of prime cattle in all sections along with the usual planer types. Not all the regular buyers were operating with some restockers, feeders and processors absent. Young cattle of the processors were 30 cents cheaper and more in places with the prime yearlings selling from 135 to 224. Feeder steers were up to 30 cents cheaper while the feeder heifers were 3 to 8 cents cheaper. Feeder steers sold from 162 to 230, while a feeder heifer sold from 135 to 209. Young cattle of the restockers were up to 40 cents cheaper, with the young steers selling to 206 and the young heifers 160. Ground steers were 2 cents cheaper, while the ground heifers were up to 20 cents cheaper. Prime ground steers sold from 150 to 210, while the ground heifers sold from 150 to 208. Cows were 12 to 20 cents cheaper, with the 2 and 3 scores selling from 60 to 159. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 145 to 178 to average 162. Bulls were dearer, selling to 206 cents. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Graham Richards at Yass. Good afternoon. There was a lift in numbers to 718. There was a big jump in cow numbers with nearly 200 penned. Grown heifers also lifted in volume. Off the large draft of cows were cows and were calves, which sold open auction. The quality of the young cattle varied, but there were more that suited the trade. The market sold to a firm to dear a trend. Weiner steers 140 to 200 cents. The heifers 120 to 184. Feeder steers were 30 to 40 cents stronger breed related, mostly 155 to 194, with one pen reaching 228. Restocking heifers lifted 18 for the D muscle, 112 to 144. C muscle feeder heifers reached 176. Heavy trade heifers, 155 to 191. Grown steers were cheaper, breed related, 135 to 180. Very light grown heifers to restock, 80 cents to 118. Heavy weights to process reached 170. Cows lifted 13 cents on the planer lines and 5 to 7 on the prime heavyweights. Two score cows, 118 to 127. Heavy three and four scores, 130 to 165. And this has been Graham Richard. And to Armadale. Good afternoon. A reduced penny of 975 head that included a line of 300 lightweight Angus yearling heifers, less than 150 steers in the offering. Quality was very mixed, as was condition. Some very good cows. The usual processes in attendance. Not all got a start. Varying trends through the young cattle, lightweight yielding steers to restockers, mostly dearer, 148 to 236 cents, while the medium and heavyweights sold to cheaper trends, 140 to 194 cents a kilo for the sea mussels. Lightweight yielding heifers under 280 kilos, dearer for the most part, with breed a major factor. They sold from 100 to 227 cents a kilo. Those up to 330 kilos also a shade dearer, 128 to 174. Medium and heavy trade sold from 127 to 180 cents. James Armitage for MLA in Armidale. And that's the Country Hour for today. I'm David Clawton. You can get more rural information at abc.net.au slash rural.